Okay, good morning. Good morning. It's Mother's Day, and at most churches in America today, they'll be preaching from Proverbs 31. We're not doing that this morning. We're actually going to be going back to our study from the book of Revelation, and we're going to be introduced to a character who is one of the most wicked wives and mothers that has ever existed. So just because you're a mother doesn't make you worthy of praise or worthy of blessing or worthy of thanksgiving. We'll see today that one mother was so wicked that she's equated with the depths of Satan. So we're not going to be preaching on Proverbs 31 this morning. What I find interesting is how in America, in our society, and in our churches, the role of a mother as defined by Scripture is mocked, it's shunned, and it's avoided. In fact, what we perceive as a virtuous woman in today's society is one who has a career, one who is liberated from her role as a mother. Children are not seen as a blessing. Being in the home is not seen as a glorious thing. Uh, being a helpmeet to one's husband is seen as a curse. And these are the things that define a virtuous woman in the Scripture. So I find it strange that we would even celebrate Mother's Day in this culture. Because this culture hates everything that the Bible defines as a godly mother and a godly wife. So why do these churches go so far out of their way to celebrate Mother's Day? And it's one of those Sundays when more people will be in church, just like Christmas and Easter, than any other day. And what are they talking about? How do we preach through Proverbs 31 and then show our approval for what this society has defined as mothers and wives today, even in our churches? So it's kind of a sad uh, paradox, evidence that um, God's judgment's already upon this country, that we could preach such things and glorify such things and not even see the truths that are being proclaimed when in fact we affirm the opposite by our tolerance for sin in the church, by our silence in society. It's really sad. But we're not going to go that route today. I'm glad there were a few statements made because a godly woman's price is far above rubies. And a, and a man who finds a wife who fears the Lord finds a good thing. Amen. Finds a good thing. So husbands, be grateful for your wives that love the Lord and they love the Lord more than they love a career or making a name for themselves. Okay? So we're going to go back to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. I've been teaching through this book. We're moving very slowly, which is okay. It's okay. We don't operate according to a liturgical calendar. So we want to see everything that God has to say to us, particularly in these messages to the seven churches, which, if anything, are applicable to the church today because they're being written to God's people during the church age. That time from the, Pente the, the Pentecost, the birth of the church, until Christ's coming, His rapture for His bride. Last week, we talked a little bit about some of the unique characteristics of this letter to the church at Thyatira. Uh, we talked about how there's no call to repentance in this letter as there is in some of the others. This church had gone past the point of repentance. We talked about how Jesus, here and only here in the book of Revelation, is referred to as the Son of God. Okay? There was, there, we talked about why. Okay, we also talked about how instead of a, an invocation followed by a blessing, as we see in the first three letters with Thyatira, it switches. The blessing 
The, the blessing is followed by the invocation. And I talked about what that possibly means. We also discussed a little historical background concerning the city of Thyatira, the predominance of the trade guilds in that city. We talked about Lydia being from Thyatira. She was the first convert from Europe, although she was Asian, uh, in Philippi when Paul took his second missionary journey west. And I kind of got off on a little bit of a sidetrack discussing the people group mentality of missions that is popular today as opposed to God's calling of us to places with a willingness to share the gospel with whomever He may put in our path. And with all of those matters of introduction now behind us, I want to actually get into the text. Okay? Today, I believe at 1215, uh, a couple of you are going to be leaving to go pick up the food. Maybe some of you have to leave. That's fine. You're not going to bother me. I'm just going to preach until the food gets here. And then next week, I would like to finish this message to the church at Thyatira so I'm just going to ask that next week you give me your patience. We have to finish this letter. I would like to finish the letters to the seven churches before I head to South America in late June. And that will give us a clean breaking point for when I return we can pick up with chapter 4. So just let, let, let me have your patience this week, next week in particular. We'll just preach until the food gets here and we'll end up wherever the Lord wants us to end up today. Okay? Alright, we're here in Revelation chapter 2 beginning at verse 18. We're actually going to get into the text this morning. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. This verse is simply the salutation or the greeting of this letter in which the author identifies himself. As I said before, this is the only reference that Jesus Christ of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is only reference to him as the Son of God. Why is that? There comes a point when a church becomes so corrupt that it needs to be reminded of who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, not merely a man, but God Himself. And as I said last week, this Thyatira church symbolizes the Roman Catholic system as predominant in the Middle Ages, a system in which a man, the Pope, is worshipped in the place of Christ. And so this church is being reminded, or as we see here with the local church, this spirit, this woman, this Jezebel in the place of Christ, Christ is reminding the church, this is God talking to you, not some Pope or not some woman. In this day and time when everything is so relativistic and when the Bible is shunned, and when men claim to love Jesus but despise His teachings, the church in America needs to be reminded that this is what the Son of God says. The Son of God, not merely a man. So it's important here that Jesus calls Himself the Son of God addressed to a corrupt church that's beyond repentance. Now, there are those I encounter when I'm out preaching on the college campuses or witnessing to people in the streets, and they'll say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. That's just what His disciples wrote about Him. Well, right here He claims to be the Son of God. He's the one talking. I marvel at statements like that that are made. And it shows that someone's never cracked open the Scriptures. They're just repeating what's being said. It's amazing. I want to back up a moment, actually. I forgot about this. I need to make two corrections. I cannot stand when I unintentionally misrepresent facts. 
There were two things I said last week that were wrong, and I want to correct those. So I put a notice on Facebook last week. But we talked about some historical issues last week, and I read from you, I read for you from the Philadelphia Baptist Confession and what that what Baptists historically in America have thought concerning the Pope and the Catholic system. And I talked about that confession being penned in 1707. Uh, actually, it was in 1707 that the Philadelphia ba uh, Baptist uh, Association was founded. It was the first association of Baptists in the United States. It was 1742 when that confession was penned. And interestingly, guess who it was that printed that? for the Philadelphia Baptists in 1743. Benjamin Franklin. He's the one that printed that for them at his printing press. So I just wanted to correct that. Another thing I said is I talked about Henry IV, a king of England that went and bowed down to the Pope outside of a castle in the winter naked and, and, and I mean, basically scantily clothed and, and, and barefoot, begging the Pope's forgiveness. A king. He wasn't the king of England. He was the king of the Holy Roman Empire. And that wasn't just one night, it was three days in the snow from January 25th to 27th in the year 1077 that Henry IV of the Holy Roman Empire begged a pope's forgiveness. Imagine that, a king of a nation begging forgiveness from a pope. So I just like to have my facts straight um, and I like to, to make sure I share that if I find myself to have been wrong. So I did misspeak last week, please forgive me for that. Anyway, that's a little bit off topic. Let's get back to the text. These things saith the Son of God who has His eyes like a flame of fire and His feet as fine brass. Have we heard that before in the book of Revelation? Yeah, we heard it in chapter 1. Remember, John had this vision of Jesus in His glory, not a weakling hanging on a cross as portrayed by the Catholic Church on their crucifix. Not a weakling as communicated by a lot of Christians today with their understanding of Jesus, but a great king with hair white like wool denoting wisdom. He was girt about the paps in a robe of a magistrate, feet of brass, eyes of fire, a double-edged sword from his mouth, Christ in his glory. Very similar undoubtedly to what Peter, James, and John saw on that Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus Christ in His glory. You see, Thyatira needs to be reminded of who Jesus is. And so in each of these letters, one aspect of that vision is mentioned which is particularly applicable to that church. What does it mean? What is being emphasized here that J Jesus had eyes as a flame of fire and feet of fine brass? Somebody look up Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 and read that for us this morning. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Why is this aspect of Christ's character as revealed in Revelation 1, why are the Thyatirans being reminded of that here? Hebrews 4, 12 and 13. Pay very attention to the pronoun in verse 13. For the Word of God is, power, is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of all Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What is this passage referring to? The Word of God, right? 
What is the Word of God called in verse 13? A person. Neither is there anything that is not manifest in His sight. For all things are naked and open before the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. My friends, the Word of God, the written Word of God, the living Word of God are identified so closely that you can almost think of them as one and the same. Because this Word of God, this printed Word of God is preserved through up for us in our language is the mind of God. It's the revelation of God to man. What He wants us to know concerning His character, His plan and purpose for the ages. Jesus Christ is the living embodiment of that Word. Because when Jesus Christ became man, He not only fulfilled this Word to perfection, making Him a perfect sacrifice, He was the living embodiment of everything that's in this book. And therefore, Jesus the Christ would never say or do or lead someone to do anything that would go against what's written here. Okay? Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the living Word, the written Word, is there really much difference? I said that to a false teacher recently who tried to argue with me in a cemetery. Very rude. I was at a funeral of a young man that died in Afghanistan. I used to teach karate lessons to. And he accused me of idolatry. He told me I was worshiping a book. And I said, no, friend, you're the idol worshiper. You've created a Jesus in your mind that serves your own lust and pleasures. You can't love Jesus and hate the Bible. It's impossible. Jesus defined the Word of God as truth, and He's called the Word of God in John chapter 1. There's another name for the Son of God. I was telling my children the other night, it's the Word of God. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, 1 John 5, 7. But what does it mean that His eyes are a flame of fire? Well, I look at this description of the Word of God in Hebrews 4, and it's piercing like a sword. It can see into the innermost part of the being. Jesus Christ can see our heart. He can see our motives. He can see our feelings and our emotions. And He knows them as they are in truth. Just like the Word of God can discern and divide between the soul and spirit, so Jesus Christ, the living Word of God, has eyes of fire that try everything that man claims for himself. I think of that fire that the works of believers must pass through at the judgment seat of Christ. Those things that were not done in truth are burned up. Those things that remain are those things which were done with a pure motive for Christ and His Gospel. So when I see eyes as a flame of fire, I think of judgment. Not impartial judgment. Not judgment based upon partial knowledge, but judgment based upon truth. And not influenced by politics, something that's almost non-existent in our world today. Then it says His feet are of fine brass. Well, what am I reminded of here? What does that remind you of? Do you remember the Old Testament tabernacle? And then later in the temple, there was an altar, a brazen altar that was placed in the outer court for the burning of the sin offering. A symbol of God's judgment upon sin is what took place on that brazen altar in the temple and the tabernacle before it. So what is the church at Thyatira being told here? Or what is being emphasized about Christ? His role as a judge is being emphasized. And we also see that in John's vision in chapter 1. It says that he's girt about the paps, the breast, in a robe, not about the waist. The robe about the waist was a sign of servanthood. 
The robe about the breast was that of a magistrate. One in a magisterial office would wear the, the robe about the breast. Jesus Christ is the judge. And Thyatira is being reminded that as a judge, he sees eyes as a flame of fire and he stamps out feet of fine brass, sin in the church. Christ Jesus sees sin in the church and He stamps it out. Now the way He stamps it out may not be the way we think He should stamp it out, but He does. Sometimes that's the removing of a testimony so that a church can just come, go on being the way it is, thinking it's right, thinking it's okay, bearing no fruit and deceiving themselves into thinking they're doing God's work. Sometimes that's Christ stamping out His judgment. He warned Ephesus that if you don't repent, I will remove your candlestick. That doesn't mean you'll be damned to hell and genuine salvation is lost. It means your testimony will be removed. We don't covet that. God forbid I'd have to stand before Christ and all of my works burn up in the fire, yet my, myself, I myself am saved so as by fire, but I have no testimony. I've heard people say, well, I'd just rather have a little old cabin in glory in the dark corner. doesn't matter. Come on. I don't think you understand Christ, who He is, and what glory and eternity is if, that, if you're satisfied with that. But Jesus Christ sees and stamps out sin. Now, we often think of Christ as the Savior. Okay? I think of the Roman Catholic system and, and some of its Protestant children and, and how Christ is always spoken of as the Savior and He's presented as weakling or as if half His teachings were never spoken but He's never presented in His other facet, His facet as judge. And this, we are reminded of this, that Christ is judge and He sees and His judgment meted out is a warning to all the churches. Someone turn to Amos chapter 9, verse 1. When I read this passage, maybe I never see it connected in the commentaries, but I can't help but think about this picture that God gives Israel. God gives Israel a picture here in Amos 9.1 very similar to what God or Christ is giving the church here in Thyatira. Amos chapter 9, verse 1. Somebody read that. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and He said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the post may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Okay. What is God doing here in Amos 9 on the altar? He's standing on the altar. Friends, that's significant. Just like Jesus, when Stephen saw Him standing on the right hand of God in Acts chapter 7, not seated, that's significant. That's a topic for another day. But this is significant in Amos chapter 9. God is standing on the altar. Well, what does that mean? The altar was a place of sacrifice. An altar, the altar in the Old Testament was a place of mercy because of judgment executed on an interposed sacrifice. But when that altar and sacrifice are despised, that same place of mercy becomes a place of judgment. And the imagery there is the same with the cross. The cross, and I often preach this on the street, the cross is not only a symbol of what God thinks about man, God's love for man, it's also a symbol of what man thinks about God. Man hates God and nailed him to a cross. But the cross is a paradox of sorts. It's a symbol of God's love and mercy for the world. But when that love and mercy are despised and rejected, it is at once a symbol of judgment. And so when I consider Christ as the judge here before Thyatira, and I consider God standing upon the altar, 
the altar going from a place of mercy to a place of, of judgment, I can't help but think of the atonement that Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, I don't like labels. Okay? I don't define my theology by a man's name. I, do, I am not a Calvinist. Okay? I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. I'm not a Reformed preacher. I like to think that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and my theology is determined by the Bible. And if I find that my theology goes against Scripture, I need to change it. So I think we have to be very careful that we don't define ourselves with man-made labels. Now, I believe three things I'll never budge on as a preacher, as a Christian, and as, a, as, a, uh, um, uh, as one who shares the Gospel. Number one, the Bible is the Word of God. It's the, it's the final authority. I will not bend on that. Number two, Jesus Christ is God. Period. Not just a man. He is God. And the only way to heaven. And number three, as Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is an act of God from beginning to end. Without God and His Holy Spirit, man cannot save himself. I will not budge on that. Salvation is by grace, through faith, alone. And even repentance and faith are gifts of God. Now, I can't understand that. That doesn't make me think, well, if God's behind it, there's nothing I can do. I'm going to sit home and God's going to save whoever He wants to save. No, God commanded His followers to go out and preach the Gospel. So, you know, if we're saved, we're going to be obedient. I believe salvation is of the Lord. However, I don't like the way these theologies and these people who, who project a, a, a theology defined by a man's name would try to take scriptural truth and mold it into their own acronyms and their own definitions. And I often hear those that would say salvation is of the Lord try to define the atonement of Jesus Christ as being limited. Limited in its, uh, in its uh, purpose and its benefit only to those saved by God or only to the elect. My friends, that contradicts Scripture. And it makes man the primary beneficiary of salvation and the atonement. I don't believe man is the primary beneficiary of the atonement. I believe the primary beneficiary is Jesus Christ. I don't think the primary purpose of the cross was to save man. The primary purpose was to glorify God. And so even if not a single man in the history of the earth looked to the cross, believed upon it and was saved, God would still be glorified by the cross. Why? Because in the cross, Christ is validated as not only as the Savior of men, but as the rightful judge of men. In fact, it was Christ as judge over the loss that Paul preached in Athens at Acts 17. He said that men should repent because of this atonement and because in that atonement God has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the One whom He hath ordained. And He proved it by raising Him from the dead. So I don't like to speak of the atonement that Jesus performed on the cross as being limited. How can it be limited? 1 John 2.2 2 says that Christ was, is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but for the whole world. 1 Timothy 4.10, however, does say, it does say that Christ is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Now, from man's perspective, what Christ did on the cross, obviously, in its benefit for man... It may be potential for all men, but it only benefits those that are saved. Obviously, in that sense, it's limited. But in the sense of its primary purpose and its primary beneficiary, it is not 
limited. Why? Because the atonement was primarily for Christ's benefit. Read Psalm 2. Read Psalm 2, that messianic psalm. And its primary purpose was to bring glory of God. We have to think of things not so much in terms of man's perspective all the time. Everything happens for the glory of God. Part of that is the redemption of men. Praise God for that. But you must understand that on the day of judgment, there are many excuses that will come Christ's way. Many from so-called professing believers. Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in Your name? Did you, do you understand that it's the atonement of Jesus Christ and what He did that will cause every man to fall silent and place their hand over their mouth? Not only is He the Savior, but by virtue of what He did on the cross, He is the rightful judge. If Christ isn't your Lord or your Savior, He is your judge. In this sense, the atonement isn't limited. In its potential, it validates Christ as the Savior of men, but in its actual, it validates Christ as the rightful judge over those who reject that sacrifice. And I think this picture is what's being conveyed here to the church at Thyatira. You see, at Thyatira, idolatry had come into the church. Spiritual fornication. And so, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross had been despised and rejected. And now this church, who had already been given space to repent, is being reminded that that same atonement you have despised is what validates me as judge with eyes of fire and feet of fine brass. Something to think about. Salvation is of the Lord, but we have to be careful of how we define it. I find that acronym that so many folks live and die by, that TULIP acronym that speaks about salvation and defines Calvinism, I find it fascinating that that was not something that was put together by John Calvin in the Middle Ages or his followers. It was a, an acronym that was put together by his enemies describing his theology. And John Calvin was a man used by God more so in the preservation of the pure text of Scriptures. Do you know that John Calvin was as instrumental as anyone else in the preservation of God's Word in the Geneva Bible, which was in English in the, early, in the 1500s? And it was that Geneva Bible, along with other translations that the King James translators had on their tables in 1611. The Geneva Bible is what the pilgrims first brought to America. So praise God for those reformers. We ought to focus more on their role in the preserving of Scriptures. Martin Luther gave the, the Bible to the, people in, the German people in German. Praise God for that. That was more important than those 95 theses. But we cannot define our theology in terms of a man, and neither do I believe these men would want us to do that. Be careful the labels you use for yourself because there's things that go with it, historically speaking, that undoubtedly we would be uncomfortable with. That's another side note. For those reasons, I don't call myself Reformed. I don't call myself Calvinist. I don't call myself Arminian. I'd rather be accused of being a Calvinist than an Arminian in some ways, but, and then in other ways the other. But we want to be Bible believers and we want our theology not to be influenced by the whims of society or the fads of the day, but by, by the whole revelation of Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay, we have the salutation, verse 18. Let's go to verse 19. I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. 
Now there's some very interesting wording here. In fact, it's been interpreted in several ways, and this is one of those instances where I actually like to go get my Greek New Testament, a Textus Receptus, you know, the Greek that was the basis of the Reformation Bibles and the King James, not the Greek of the modern versions. That's a critical text that came right out of the vaults of the Vatican in Rome. You know, the one that's missing 27, 28 verses in the New Testament. The one that has Jesus references to Jesus as the Christ missing over 100 times. I'm not talking about that. I picked up my Textus Receptus. Well, I wanted to see how it was worded in the Greek. And I find what is interesting here is this word and. I know thy works and. It's a descriptive use of that conjunction there. Which means what follows defines what came before. So in other words, read that verse like this. I know thy works. And just imagine a colon there. What is he... He's defining works in what follows. I know thy works. That is, or i.e., your charity, service, faith, and patience. That's the way I understand it. Some say, well, you read this, and what Jesus is doing is He's commending the church for growth in its works. Something that Ephesus did not do. Ephesus did not grow. And so Thyatira had works of faith, service, charity, patience, and they grew in their works. I don't think that's what's happening here. We have to actually look at what Christ accuses them of later, the indictment in this passage, in order to properly understand the commendation. So in other words, as I see this, Thyatira in the beginning had works. Works. What type of works? Works of charity, service, faith, and patience. Okay, that's the way I see it. But when you read the terrible indictment that Christ gives them later, something is wrong. Praise God for a church that has works of charity, a church that has works of service, faith, and patience. Wow, praise God for that. Can that be said of the churches today? A lot of churches in America? Look at this commendation. This is the most corrupt of the seven churches beyond repentance, and yet Christ gives them a commendation that many churches in America today couldn't even fulfill. I find it interesting that this is not only a longer commendation than what was given to Ephesus, but more praise in these letters, more praise is given to Ephesus, the church that left its first love, remember? More praise is given to Ephesus and Thyatira Thyatira when blame follows than the praise that is given to Smyrna and Philadelphia when no fault is found by Christ. Isn't that interesting? More praise is given to Ephesus and Thyatira followed by some pretty stringent indictment than the praise that's given to Philadelphia and Smyrna, two churches in which Christ finds no fault. I just find that interesting. So even in this message to, the, to, to a corrupt church, we see a commendation that we as Christians should strive for in our church bodies. Why is it that people lacking in our society turn to the government for help? Why is it that people want the government to supply health insurance? Why is it that people turn to the government for, for, uh, uh, for funds, for tax credits, uh, government programs? Because the church 
isn't doing what it's called to do. If the church in this society were providing for its own, particularly the widows and the fatherless, if the church in this society, if the church bodies were binding together to take care of the medical needs of their own members, we wouldn't need health insurance. Oh, that we would embrace this commendation. However, there's a problem here. A remarkable commendation considering the severe condemnation that is to follow, by the way. But something has gone awry. It says here, I know thy works, that is, charity, service, faith, and patience. And then he says, and thy works. And the last to be more than the first. Some think that this is saying, you know, your work, you've shown growth in your works and your last works are better than your first, spiritual growth. I don't think that's what's happening here. When you read the Greek and consider that descriptive use of the conjunction, what I'm seeing here is Christ saying, look, I know your works, okay? Works that began as works of charity, faith, servant, and patience. And I know your works, in other words, what began as sourced in these spiritual attributes became... This, this phrase here is almost sarcastic on the part of Christ. Look, I know your works. I know you think you're somebody. I know your works. And the last, these type of works, to be more than these, the first. In other words, what was rooted in Spiritual fruit became dead religion. That's the way I see it. In other words, you had something. You had the fruits of righteousness, but you began to trust in those works. And you turned away from me, the Son of God, and now you became dead religion. Now, isn't that the Roman Catholic system to a T? Salvation by works. Earning merit. Exalting the second greatest commandment over the first greatest commandment. Kids, how many commandments are in God's law? Ten. ten. The moral law of God. Jesus took those ten commandments and He summed them up into how many? Jesus condensed the ten commandments into how many commandments? Two. You see, when God gave Moses those tables of stone at Mount Sinai, Jewish tradition says there were two tables, and the first table of the law contained the first four of those moral commandments. The second table contained the last six. Why would it be divided like that? Relationship with God as defined by the first four commandments, and our relationship with man as defined by the last six. Okay, God's law... First, concerns our relationship with Him. Secondly, our relationship with our neighbor. That's why Jesus could sum it up. You know, he was, you know, this arrogant young lawyer came to Jesus trying to trap Him in His words. What is the greatest commandment of the law, Master? Jesus said, number one, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Commandments one through four. And number two, the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Commandments six through ten. But what happens when love for our neighbor, the second table of the law, supplants our love for God, the first table of the law? That's wicked. 
And that's what we see in our society today. It's all about loving man, loving my brother, loving my neighbor. And the love that's spoken of is not sacrificial and unconditional. It's selfish, by the way. But nobody cares about love for God. It's all about love for man. And it's funny because I'll, I'll hear these people object to the Bible on the college campuses and say, I can't serve that God of yours. Have you ever read Leviticus chapter 19? Have you ever read what, what happened to the Canaanites when Joshua and the people went in and killed all those people? I think it's all about love. We need to love our neighbor. It's all love. Let me give you a hug. You can't rightly love your fellow man, my friends, unless you love the one in whom the, is the one whose image is in your fellow man, God, an image tainted by the fall, by the way. But you can never properly understand love for your neighbor unless you have love for God. The sin of American churchianity is we've put love for man over our love for God. I think that's what was happening here, in a sense. Jesus commends them for their works defined as charity, patience, service, and faith. Good things. Paul the Apostle praised the church at Thessalonica not for its works, but its works of faith. Works that are works of faith bring glory to God because they're rooted in our relationship with God and our faith in Him. But works in and of themselves cannot make us right with God. Works do not make us right with God. They justify us before men, but the only thing that can justify us before God is faith. And true faith produces works. It's not a contradiction. It's beautiful, encompassing God's perspective and man's perspective. Encompassing what justifies us before God and what proves we've been justified before God before men. But to exalt men above God is not only dangerous, it's idolatry. I marvel when I, when I go in and out of Nepal and South Asia, these idolatrous Hindu and Buddhist societies. Anybody that ever told you Buddhism's not a religion, it's a state of mind, has never been to a Buddhist country. Foolishness. They have as many gods and goddesses that they bow down to in Tibetan Buddhism as they do in Hinduism, it seems. Idols everywhere. Well, in these idolatrous countries, what they worship are supernatural beings. Paul calls them devils. They're not worshiping gods, they're worshiping devils. And they see them as gods and goddesses and they are supernatural beings. Well, hey, at least what they worship is a supernatural being beyond man. At least they have enough sense to know if they're going to worship something, it's something more powerful than man. But here in America, the idols we worship are finite. Men, men that die, whether it's the president, a, a, a member of the government, a sports figure, our own selves. We worship finite beings that die. So who's the bigger fool? The one that bows down to an image of what they see as a supernatural being or a devil? Or the one that worships a finite man who lives and dies? Live strong, the call of the hour, but die anyway. Jesus said it this way, quoting the Psalms, you are gods, but you'll die like men. Who's the bigger fool? I think American, Americans are bigger fools in some ways. Interesting side note here. God, as He reveals Himself in the law, sometimes is very terrible. 
I don't mean terrible in a negative sense, but terrible. It should invoke fear. One of the characteristics of the church or of society in the last days is there is no fear of God before their eyes. Nobody wants to talk about fear of God. But where did Jesus get this statement, love your neighbor as yourself? We think that that's just something Jesus made up and added to the law. Therefore, crossing out the Old Testament. What I find very interesting is people always bring up Leviticus 18 and 19 to prove their hatred for God, their hatred for the Bible, and their definition of God as a wicked, self-serving tyrant. Leviticus 18 and 19 without fail. Guess what words are found in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18? Nothing new Jesus gave. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The same chapters that people say define God as a tyrant. Guess what they also teach us? Leviticus 19 teaches us we should love our neighbor as ourselves. That's Old Testament law. It teaches us that we should honor our elders and serve the hoary head and respect those that are wise in age. That's Leviticus 19. The terrible tyrant God. Leviticus 19 tells us that when we harvest our fields, not to gather all the crops, but to leave some behind for the poor and the strangers so they too might be fed. That's the terrible tyrant God of Leviticus. Leave food behind when God blesses you so that others can be fed. Leviticus 19 teaches us not to hate our neighbor. That to hate our neighbor is not only a danger to oneself, it's a danger to a nation. Leviticus 19 tells us to love the strangers and the travelers that come through our land and they're not at home here. Wow, that's a tyrant God, isn't it? Horrible. God of the Old Testament's not the God of the New Testament. That's what they say. Guess what also is said there in that chapter? God says that Israel is to have just balances and fair trade. They are not to gouge their prices. They are not to cheat people by pricing things higher than they are supposed to be. Wow. The same people who claim that the God of the Old Testament is a tyrant are guilty of all these things here in which this loving God, the same God of the Old Testament as in the New, the same Jesus, that angel of the Lord that went before Joshua and the children of Israel, the captain of the Lord's host, into Canaan. That was Jesus, a pre-incarnate appearing of Him. That's the same Jesus as appears in the New Testament that says, love thy neighbor as thyself. Love thy neighbor as thyself comes straight from the Old Testament law. That's an interesting side note. I tell you, people, man is so screwed up and bent on sin that his understanding of God is far amiss of what's actually revealed here. I don't see how people can make those claims. It's as if they've never cracked a Bible and read it. Or, as, 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 or they, if they do read it, it's like they're blinded when they come to those simple truths. Why would God open my eye? Why would He open any of our eyes? What a picture of His grace. Again, you cannot rightly understand love for man without love for God. There is no second table of the law without the first table of the law. And I think in a sense, that's what Christ is saying here, even in this commendation. Your works were done in view of Me, but the last works stand on their own. And we can interpret it that way by reading the indictment 
or the horrible condemnation that follows. I think about Isaiah 64.6. Who knows what that says? It's a very important passage to use if you're sharing the Gospel. Anybody know? How does God define our works without Him? Our righteousnesses without Him? Filthy rags. When we think of filthy rags, what's the image you get in your mind? Like a soily, oily cloth you've used to wash off some tires or something? That's kind of what we think of, right? You know what that's actually talking about there? That's talking about a woman's menstrual cloth after it's been used. That's what that's talking about in Hebrew. So in God's eyes, even our righteousnesses apart from Him are like a filthy, discarded menstrual cloth. Wow. At Thyatira, there was perhaps some growth in works, but not growth in faith. It's as if the church came to depend upon these works or to boast in them. And the last, the works they were depending on as opposed to the first, the works of faith, were more than the first. So works became more important than faith, charity, patience. In the church age, this church stands for the dark ages under the dominance of the Roman Catholic system. And doesn't that define Roman Catholicism? Works, works, works. Sacraments, sacraments, sacraments. Doesn't it define man-made religion? It's all about works. Doesn't it define a lot of American churchianity today? It's about works. Not works of faith, but works for the sake of works so that we can boast in who we are and what we do. I can't help but think about something the Roman Catholics call works of supererogation. It's a, it's a Catholic doctrine. Supererogation. What that means is it's the concept of actions that we do which make up a reserve fund of merit. In other words, we build up a savings account of works. And from that savings account, we can draw for our benefit when we or somebody else sins. So it's this concept that you do good works and you build up this savings account so when you screw up or someone else, maybe your dead relative who's in purgatory, you can pull from that bank account and pay off those sins. That's Roman Catholic doctrine. It's right there in the catechism. That's why they sold indulgences in the days of Martin Luther and he finally had enough and nailed those theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, just stopping short of calling the Pope the spirit of Antichrist. He later was very blunt in his description of the Pope in that fashion. Works of supererogation. And we want to say Catholics are Christians? We want to say the Catholic Church is something we can partner with? Come on! Sadly, this, though not confessed as doctrine by a lot of churches in America today, is how ministry is conducted as if people are doing things for work's sake and not for the sake of the Gospel or out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us on the cross. Wicked. Verses 20-23, through Christ is giving them a commendation. Make no mistake. That commendation is something we should strive for. Not to depend upon works over faith, but all that we would have works of faith, charity, patience, Service in the church. But the church has committed a terrible sin. And this terrible sin is what leads me to believe those works became more about themselves than about the God who had saved them. 
A terrible indictment, verses 20 through 23. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am He which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. A severe indictment here from the Lord to His church. Notwithstanding, despite commendable features, Thyatira was guilty of a terrible sin. Notwithstanding, I think of a popular cliche that was used. It's kind of passed away. Remember the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Remember how popular the bracelets and all that? And usually, what would Jesus do was modeled after acts or works of kindness toward our fellow man, things like that, which are good. Jesus did show compassion and love for the masses. He did it in a way to prove He was the Son of God and to, to uh, prove that He had power and authority to forgive sins. But let's ask that question. What would Jesus do when He sees those loving their neighbor to an extent, but not loving and fearing God? What would Jesus do? Would He say, you're okay. I accept you as, I am, as you are. Just keep doing what you're going to do. No problem. No. What would Jesus do when confronted with the sins of those who were bearing some sort of fruit? He would rebuke it. He would condemn it. He would love those enough to warn them of coming judgment. And that is exactly what we see here. Christ didn't ignore the sins of this church despite their works of faith and charity and patience. He called it out. He rebuked it. That is Jesus Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. What would Jesus do? He certainly wouldn't ignore sin. He told the woman taken in adultery, go and sin no more. He told another, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing happen unto you. We can't go and sin no more without Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. But those He saves, He also <coughs> empowers by the Holy Spirit to live righteously. And when any, if any man does sin in Christ, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Praise God. But we're certainly not boasting in sin. We're, not, we're certainly not taking sin that God hates and saying He's okay with it. Jesus sees sin, He rebukes it, and He judges it. Christians should follow Christ's example here in terms of false teaching, in terms of the lies being sown in the churches today. They should follow Christ's example. Notwithstanding, the Word of God has a few things against you. Do we have the guts to do that? Do we love our fellow man, particularly those that are professing Christians, to confront them with the Word of God when they're living in sin? That's the example of Jesus. That is WWJD. Not, well, not WWJD, WDJD. That's what Jesus... What uh, did Jesus do? He did. He did. You know, what is it with this partnership with all this false teaching here in America today. I mean, I'll take one example. Praise God for those who go down to these abortion clinics 
and try to, sh- try to reach out to these mothers and try to convince them not to murder their baby. And, and they go out here and sometimes the Gospel is preached and, and there's a presence. Praise God for that. But I get uncomfortable with those called to that ministry who somehow think that the Catholics who are out doing the same thing are partners in this work. And I've gone to abortion clinics and I've preached. I think there needs to be preaching outside these clinics. Not lovey-dovey, mealy-mouth stuff, but hellfire and brimstone in my opinion. I think America needs hellfire and brimstone preaching more than anything else today. That's just my opinion. That's what brought great revivals in American history. But I cannot stand out there and preach the Gospel and ignore the Catholics who are out there with their crucifixes and their, their rosary beads and, and doing these rituals and calling out stuff to the woman that, women that go against what God's Word said. I can't ignore that. And I've gotten in trouble with like-minded brethren because I'll speak out against that. In the pre- well, they're our partners. No, they're not. No, they're not. They preach a false gospel. Better, and I'll tread lightly here, better for a precious unborn child to die in its mother's womb than to be saved from that abortion and then to be raised in the damnable heresy of the Roman Catholic Church. No, we've got to be able to speak. We can't yoke up with false teaching. That's not the example of Jesus here. And we've got to be willing to share the truth, albeit in love... Albeit with a motive to see people come to the truth. But we can't ignore this. I'm not, ta- I'm not just picking on Catholics today. I mean, what about any type of false teaching? These guys that want to start teaching that there is no hell and all this, they're not our brothers. They're false teachers. And true love bids a warning doom to children, false teachers included, that play around the freeway. So I question some of this yoking that takes place. You know, the causes are good. But it's not about the cause. It's about the Gospel. It's about the Gospel. So ladies, keep going to these abortion clinics. Keep reaching out to these women. But realize that though it is commendable that Catholics take a stand for life, which when I share with you some of the things that happened in the Catholic Church during this Thyatira Church period, you're going to wonder how, what in the world that means. You know, it's commendable that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are so dedicated that they'll go out and do the type of outreach that we as a church should be doing. But make no mistake, they're dangerous. And they preach doctrines of devils. And they are in no way to be modeled. We just got to have the guts to say these things. Amazing. Christ goes on, Notwithstanding, what would Jesus do? He would call out sin. Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce My servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. What was Pergamos rebuked for? Tolerating those who held the doctrine of Balaam, which was what? Committing fornication and eating things sacrificed to idols. Pergamos was rebuked for tolerating sin. But what was tolerated at Pergamos is now being taught as official doctrine at Thyatira. Isn't that amazing? Don't we see a mirror image in American churchianity today? What has been tolerated in the church 
homosexuality, abortion, divorce, more than a 50% divorce rate in the church today. The nature of Scripture, ecumenism, universalism, these things have been tolerated in the church and what's happening today? Now they're being taught. We're actually debating in Christian churches today whether or not homosexuality is okay with God. That's a debate that's taking place today. We've come to the point where abortion is no big deal. Even so much so that our pastors won't even mention it during election season. What was, taught, what was tolerated is now being taught. That spirit of Jezebel, that spirit of Thyatira has infested our churches. And it's these spirits. It's the spirits of Pergamos, toleration. The spirit of Thyatira. The spirit of Sardis, which has a name that it lives, but it's really dead. All of that comes together and what does it give us in the last days? Straight up lukewarmness. Laodicea, the rights of the people. It's all about me and not about God. Shame, shame, shame. Abraham Lincoln, a great president used by God in American history, I believe he became born again shortly after the Battle of Gettysburg. He saw the bloodshed and the death on both sides of the line and realized that life was hopeless without a Savior. And he communicated in some correspondence that his trust was in Jesus Christ. And that seemed to be a turning point for him a man used by God, he made this statement, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will become the philosophy of government in the next. That principle applies to the church. That which is tolerated in the church in one generation becomes the doctrine of the church in the next. That is Thyatira. That is the spirit of Jezebel. Here we have this mention of a woman. A wife and a mother a wicked wife and a wicked mother. Perhaps the most wicked woman in all of Scripture. Jezebel. A reference is made to this Jezebel who called herself a prophetess and was being allowed to teach false teaching in the church. Well, who was this Jezebel? Was it actually the name of a person in John's day at the church in Thyatira? Perhaps. What's more important is what that name Jezebel typifies, and we have to go to the Old Testament to see that. But if you look at the Greek syntax there in verse 20, that woman Jezebel, the way it's written, almost leads you to believe that this is a reference to the wife of the weak pastor that was at Thyatira. So there was this wife of a weakling husband who wouldn't take a stand for truth, who was supposed to be the pastor who was controlling things at Thyatira. That seems to be what's being implied here. There's many an example of this in modern times. Unfortunately, in a Christian homes, there's many an example of a wife controlling everything, not respecting her husband, ordering her husband around, making him get permission if he even wants to go share the gospel. There's many an example of where the roles have been reversed. Shame, there's many an example of husbands that don't love their wives as Christ loved the church. Shame. And they want to rule over her like they're some kind of tyrant or dictator. That's just as wicked. That's more wicked in my opinion. Adam's sin in the garden was far more wicked than Eve's. She was deceived. He knew better and did it anyway. But the roles are so reversed today. And it's particularly troublesome when it comes to spiritual things. 
You know, here, what a glorious role that God has given Christian women in the church. And what is that? To teach the younger women and to teach children. That doesn't happen anymore. Man, what if these older, seasoned, saintly ladies would teach the younger women about modesty, about mothering, about parenting, about these things that they can't find answers to in the world? That's the role. That's not something I can do. I can't teach younger women about these things. I'm a man. But here we had some woman that was controlling the church and it appears that she very well may have been the wife of a weak pastor. Perhaps. Was her name Jezebel? Maybe, maybe not. The point is what is being typified here. Whoever this was, she is a type of that Old Testament Jezebel. And when we consider that the Roman Catholic system was born in Babylonian paganism, part of which showed up in Israel under Ahab and Jezebel in the form of Baal worship, the spirit of Roman Catholicism is the spirit of Jezebel. It's the spirit of false religion. It's the spirit of Nimrod going back to his kingdom of Babel. It's the spirit of false religion, a religion based on works and not on grace, the grace of God. Whoever this was, she is a type of that Old Testament Jezebel, the most evil woman in all of Scripture, the most evil mother in all of Scripture, the most evil wife in all of Scripture. Many false religious systems began with a prophetess. Go study the history of the cults. Many of them began with a prophetess. Scary. In terms of this letter's prophetic foreview, Jezebel is a reference undoubtedly to the Roman Catholic Church with its licentious practices and its idolatrous worship. No question. But we need to look at this Jezebel in the Old Testament to better understand the indictment that is being made against Thyatira. We're going we're to end here, but I don't want to end until we read one passage of Scripture. 1 Kings. Somebody look up 1 Kings 16, verses 30 through 33. This is a brief description of this figure in the Old Testament, Jezebel. King Ahab married this woman Jezebel who was the daughter of the king of the Zidonians, a very polygamous, a very idolatrous people. And it was her that stirred up Ahab to do evil as we see in 1 Kings 21. That, it was little enough that he continued in the ways of Jeroboam to provoke the Lord, but he went and married this woman. And when you study the history of Ahab and Jezebel in the kingdom of Israel, what you see is a very weak husband ruled by a strong-willed wife. Wickedness. Now, I want to give you a little historical background while we're waiting for the food to come. Remember, David was king of Israel. Solomon became king. And I believe Solomon dedicated the temple 
think what was the what was the date there? You can figure it out in scripture. Uh, somewhere around, I think it was 986 BC. I may be wrong there. I'd have to look that up. But somewhere around there, Solomon dedicates the temple. And if you remember, Solomon marries all these women, right? And he starts trying to please them. He can't keep up with all of them. I can't imagine 700 wives and 300 concubines. I can't imagine that. But he's trying to keep up all of them, so he lets them build idols, and they turn his heart away from the Lord God. Now we see at the end of his life, he sees the error of his ways and writes the book of Ecclesiastes. But because Solomon has turned his, uh, uh, himself away from the God of his fathers, uh, uh, the Lord tells Solomon he's going to take the kingdom away from him. He's going to preserve the line of David in Judah, one tribe, which also encompassed uh, later Benjamin and, and, and Simeon and people from the other tribes would actually come in and worship. But Jeroboam was caught by one of the prophets and said, you're going to be the king over Israel. The ten tribes as a judgment against Solomon. And Jeroboam was told, look, if you'll follow the Lord and honor Him, I will bless you and make you a sure house. Okay? So this happened somewhere middle 950 B.C. That's an estimation. I don't remember the exact dates. I'd have to look it up in my notes. But so, the kingdom was divided under Solomon's son Rehoboam and Jeroboam who became the first king of Israel. And when we study the history of the kings of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, Every one of those kings is said to have not departed from the sins of Jeroboam, its first king. Well, what was that? What is that reference there? Well, what Jeroboam did is he started out with the desire to serve the Lord. They gave Rehoboam a chance to do what was right, and in his foolish youth, he listened to his youthful counselors. And the, and the ten tribes said, All right, you have your own kingdom. We're going to do our thing. Well, Jeroboam got jealous over the people from his tribes going down to Jerusalem to worship in the temple as commanded by God. He thought, well, if, they keep, if they're allowed to go to Jerusalem and worship, then their heart is going to be turned back toward the line of David and I'm going to lose my kingdom. Even though God promised him he wouldn't lose his kingdom if he would be faithful. So what did Jeroboam do to prevent the people from worshiping in Jerusalem? It says he built two golden calves... One in the far north at a place called Dan and one in the far south in a place called Bethel and said, look, Israel, these are your God. This is your God, Jehovah. Why go to Jerusalem and worship when you can worship right here in your own country? We'll set up altars to Jehovah God just like Israel did in the desert when Moses was on the mountain, a golden calf, and you can worship there. So the sin of Jeroboam was making a graven image. God told the people, do not make a graven image of me. You can't know me like that. You don't know me like that. Neither can you. Moses could barely even look at my backside. Don't make a graven image and claim to know what I look like. That is a wicked sin. What Jeroboam did was make graven images. And the people began to go there and worship. And it was the sin of worshiping God in a manner in which he did not want to be worshipped. So that sin wasn't idolatry in the sense of worshiping another god. In their minds, these people were worshiping God, but they weren't worshiping in a, Him in a way He wanted to be worshipped. And there's a great lesson there. Cain learned that lesson the hard way. You don't come to God on your own terms, folks. 
You come to Him on His terms. You know, you don't go pastor a church if you're not qualified. That's not worshiping God. You come to God on His terms. He's got high standards for leadership in the church. You don't worship God with a graven image. That was the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebod, and that was passed on. That sin was never taken care of until the Assyrians came and carried away the northern kingdom captive in 722 B.C. So it, was enough, it wasn't enough that Ahab continued in these sins of Jeroboam. It wasn't enough. He also married this woman who took the kingdom another step further in its reprobation. She brought idolatry in the land. So prior to Ahab, they were worshiping Jehovah. They were, they were just worshiping in a way he didn't want to be worshipped. Wicked evil. But with the coming of Jezebel, it wasn't worshiping Jehovah anymore. It was worshiping Baal, a false god. Baal has many names throughout history. One of those names is Shiva, the destroyer in Hinduism. Baal is also known as Allah in the Quran. Not God, trust me. The moon god from Samaria. Baal, moon god, Allah. Baal is also known as the devil. What those early Babylonians worshipped, the devil. Lucifer, son of the morning. Baal. Israel turned under Jezebel from worshipping God, albeit with wicked practices and ritual, to worshipping another god. Worshipping another god. So that's kind of a little history there about what's being said there when we describe who this Jezebel was. I encourage you this week prior to next week's lesson to read 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings chapter 9. And that kind of encompasses the whole story of Jezebel and her role in not only corrupting Israel, the northern kingdom, but also in corrupting Judah, the southern kingdom. And what we'll see is that this wickedness transferred to not only to the people contemporary with her, but to her own posterity. So much so that even the line of David in which Jesus the Messiah was born is corrupted. And that's why there's three kings in Matthew chapter 1 not mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. Although, from a human perspective, they were in that line. But Matthew skips over them. Why? Because during those three, the reign of the, in the time, those three kings were more the seed of Ahab and Jezebel than they were the seed of David. And it took four generations for the purity of that Davidic bloodline to be restored. So no, Matthew wasn't, didn't get an F in history when he wrote the Gospel of Matthew and then just forgot about three kings in that genealogy. No. That genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is supposed to trace for us the pure Davidic bloodline of Messiah. And so this wicked idolatry not only caused problems in the land of that day, it corrupted the Messianic bloodline. Of course, God rules and reigns over all those things and He can fix even the worst things that man screws up. But it's an interesting story and it shows you where a contradiction in the Bible is not a contradiction at all. It's a deeper truth. So I want you all to study 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 9 this week. That's some homework for you. Try to better understand who this Jezebel is. And then we'll understand what exactly 
Christ is referring to or rebuking at the church, in the church which is at Thyatira. Then we're going to get into uh, who Christ actually threatens with judgment. We're going to talk about Christ's ability to see the hearts of the people of His churches and to know their motives. And then we're going to see an interesting exhortation to the remnant here at Thyatira. Even at Thyatira, a corrupt church, God preserved or reserved unto Himself a remnant. I'd say, my friends, that even in the Catholic system, there are, Roman, there are some Roman Catholics who are saved or born again in spite of their religion and not because of it. There are. They hang around long enough, God will bring them out of that. But even God can reserve a remnant in the most corrupt church of all. He reserved a remnant in the most corrupt time of all in Israel's history. Elijah felt like he was all alone and he mourned and wept because Jezebel said, I want him dead. He had just confronted 850 prophets of Baal. And then Jezebel said, I want him dead by tomorrow. And Elijah got scared and ran into the wilderness. And what's the first thing God, after caring for the prophet, God said, get up on your feet. You're not alone. I've reserved 7,000 men in Israel which haven't bowed their knee to Baal. So praise God, even in corruption, God will reserve unto Himself a remnant. Because Jesus said, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There will always be a remnant because Jesus said there would be. And then we're going to talk about the promise and the invocation of this message. How not only are those that overcome promised authority in Christ's kingdom, they're promised rescue from God's judgment. An interesting reference to Him as the morning star. And then I want to talk a little bit about the devil's millennium, that 1,000 year period in church history when that dark Roman Catholic system actually ruled the world. And I want to share with you some of the things that actually happened in the name of Christ. And we're supposed to think that's a church. Some of it's comical. It really is comical. And it's sad when you think about churches going that same direction today. So it's taken a while with this message to the church at Thyatira, but I think these things are important and I think we should bring history into it because men have often said those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. That's true. There's a lot of history we don't want to repeat. But when it comes to Bible-believing Christians, when it comes to the church of Christ, the remnant body of Christ, if we don't know our history if we don't know the heritage of those that went before and maintain a true witness and preserve the Word of God, if we don't know their history, we may be doomed not to repeat it. I find strength and encouragement when I read the testimonies of that remnant body that existed in such corruption down through the ages. And it gives me confidence and, and boldness and, and a will to preserve, to, 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 to persevere just as they did. And friends, we don't have the suffering that they had. It may come to that, but we don't now. So I think it's important to tie these things in to not only verify the Word of God and its prophetic testimony, but also to give us courage and hope in these dark days. So I'm just kind of babbling now, waiting for the food to get back. Does anybody have any questions while we're waiting? I mean, there's a lot of material. Any questions about anything I've said? If I've said anything that you feel like is off-base... Feel free to talk to me. I don't profess to know everything. I can be mistaken. I try to study these Scriptures. I try to study what others have said. 
I try to pray and meditate over these Scriptures to make sure that our interpretation of obscure passages does not violate clear passages in Scripture. And we truly need to seek the Holy Spirit's understanding as we study these books. Anybody have any questions? I believe the calf, and I'll have to I'll have to um, research this some. It was a god that was worshipped in Egypt, and I don't remember the name of the Egyptian god, but I believe that calf god was kind of a supreme god in Egypt, and so Israel took the image of what this supreme god in Egypt was worshipped, how he was worshipped, and they conferred it upon their god. And so God had, God had said, don't make a graven image because I'm above all that. How can you liken me to a creature? You know, I would say that the most powerful angel in heaven is no more like God than the bacteria floating around our toilet. That angel is no more like God than bacteria floating in a toilet. God can't be described in human terms. And so I believe that came from Egypt because they worshipped a god um, in fact, the ten plagues of Egypt weren't just random plagues that God poured out upon the Egyptians. They were specific personal attacks against the Egyptian pantheon of gods. You know, there was a plague that hit the cattle, the blight on the cattle. That was a judgment against that God. And God was showing the Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Israelites that He was superior to their gods. And so I believe that's where that came from. And though questions don't reveal ignorance, they reveal a desire for knowledge. Proverbs says, answer a question for a fool and he will hate you. But a wise person that answers questions will love it because they want to gain knowledge. So I don't think that shows ignorance. I think it shows a desire for truth. Doesn't mean I have the answer, but any other questions? Well, I think you know the church started preaching these things, stopped preaching these things, and then they 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 at one point were a part of our societal society's fabric, and when that's taken away in the schools, I mean, I went to public school in Christian kindergarten, first grade. We prayed before our classes every morning, but that stuff's been removed, and the church stopped preaching it to try to get along with the world, and so gradually things that were not accepted began to be accepted because no one speaks out. I believe it says that, um, you know, somebody once said that evil triumphs because righteous men do nothing. And I think it's a result of the church not standing for truth and becoming more of a business, more about populating buildings as opposed to speaking the truth. And it's a sign of God's judgment on a nation. 
I mean, God told Israel in the days of Amos the king, this was in the time of Jeroboam II, which was probably the pinnacle of the northern kingdom's affluence. It was a time when they were secure, they were wealthy, and it didn't look like anything was going to mess them up anytime soon. And Amos the prophet reminded them that God's tried to get your attention with all of these things, yet you have not returned unto me, so just go ahead and do it. Teach it as right. Keep doing it. Just keep sinning. Keep going to Dan and Bethel and sacrificing the calves. This is what you want to do. Just do it. But prepare to meet your God. So there comes a point in society where God actually, I don't want to say encourages, but because God doesn't tempt men with evil, but He actually just invites a society to do what it wants to do anyway. You're beyond repentance. Do it. But we've got a meeting date. And I think that's a sign of His judgment on a nation, and we see that today here in America. We're beyond that point. God's tried to get our attention many times. We're beyond it. Okay, this liketh you, old America. Do it. Just keep sinning. But, as He told Israel in Amos 4, prepare to meet thy God. And who is this God? It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Amos 4.13. He tells Israel, prepare to meet thy God. And then verse 13, For lo, He that formeth the mountains, that createth the wind, that declareth unto man what is his thought, that maketh the morning darkness, just like He did on the cross, when Christ hung on the cross in midday it became dark, that, create, that treadeth the high places of the earth. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, is His name. That's the God we preach. That's the God we serve. And He means business. Praise God for salvation in Jesus Christ. Praise God that we can be saved to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But praise God we're saved from God, from God by Jesus Christ and His judgment. I think one of the things that has made moral standards uh, going through recession too is the buzzword they use, legalism. Yeah. Theresa uh, read a quote on the church this morning that when will we stop calling the things that Jesus told us to do, obedience to what Jesus told us to do, we call it legalism. Right. Instead of... Legalism is actually trusting in our works to save us. Not being moral and preaching righteousness for God's glory. There's a big difference. If works are for man's glory, it's legalism. But if we're preaching the truth, living the truth, declaring the truth for God's glory, that's not legalism. That's the second table of the law in its proper place. Legalism is reversing it. And really, the churches in America are one of three things. Most churches in America are one of three things. Legalistic religion, a three-ring circus, or mysticism. And that's a dangerous place to be as a society. And it's just a down spiral. And it's just like Israel in the days of the judges. That's why people run to God, run to the churches when something bad happens. The churches in Boston were full after that bombing. But then we, God is merciful and then we just down spiral even worse, even worse. Mm. 
what do we expect? Because the, tr the school and the government are not going to give our children Jesus. And, uh, and, you know, the downfall of the family and these children that have two and three mothers and fathers and, mm. and you know, and then fathers <coughs> who have not, you know, nurtured and loved their children. Mm. Well, let me just say the, and I'm going to pray over the food. Let me just say this to the young women in the church, um, the mothers in the church on this Mother's Day. Let's conclude with this. In Second or First Timothy chapter two, Paul is very clear that women are not to usurp authority or to teach in the church. That that is the role of men. The role of a pastor, the role of an elder, is a man. That's God's order of things. So any woman that claims God's called them to pastor a church is in listening to God. She may be listening to her flesh. That's very clearly revealed in the Scriptures. And it goes to talk about how the woman was deceived in the garden. But then it says something very interesting there at the end of the chapter. It says, notwithstanding, I love that word in the, in the Bible, notwithstanding she, that is the woman in the church, shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in I think the words are faith, charity, and sobriety. Am I right there? Some of y'all know that Scripture, surely. 1 Timothy uh, 2. I thought I could look to Janine over there and get a quick answer. If they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. Now, when you're studying the Scriptures, make sure that every time you encounter the word saved, salvation, or even damnation, understand that that not always is referring to eternal salvation or eternal damnation. We have to understand it in, in light of the context. The saved here isn't, being ta isn't talking about saved from hell. It's talking about being saved from something else. Well, look, Paul has just defined church order here in 1 Timothy. If a woman will raise her children and have, bear children, bear godly seed, and raise them in these things, she will be saved from what? A feeling of worthlessness in the church. A feeling of not having a role in the church. Wow! There are two ways we reproduce ourselves as Bible-believing Christians. Two ways. One of them, we go out and we preach the Gospel. God's called all men to be witnesses in a public way. Number two, we raise up godly seed. And I'm going to tell you right, right now, there's no way a father could do that job without the role of the mother. No way. He can't even come close. Raising up that godly seed is what gives the women of the church a ministry that is precious. Being a mother is a precious role in the church. So let me encourage you with that today. It gives you a purpose in the church. Not only as a mother with your children, but where other young women are concerned. I think it's Titus where it says the older women who have been mothers should instruct the younger women about how to live and bring glory to God. That's why I like women that go and minister at the abortion clinics. I mean, I can stand up on the box and preach. And I think the abortion doctor, I think the people working there need to hear that hard preaching. But there's, not, there's something that I can't do as a man in terms of reaching out to these women who are tempted to murder their babies. That's something that women can do. And they can speak in a way that they can relate to, particularly mothers. So if you want to know what a woman how a woman will be saved from a feeling of uselessness or worship, uh, worthlessness in the church, raise up a godly seed and teach the younger women to do the same. So let's just end on that note. It is Mother's Day. There are wicked mothers and wives like Jezebel.
but praise God for godly women, virtuous women who fear the Lord, who love their children, who love their husbands, who keep the home, things that our society disdains, but God praises. Happy Mother's Day. Why don't we pray over the food? We can fellowship. Everybody's welcome to stay. The church is providing the food today. What a blessing. And part of what we enjoy here as a church is we try not to operate on a be done at 12 o'clock so I can get into the buffet line. Part of the New Testament church is the fellowship with the saints. You know, those we worship with on Sunday ought to be our closest friends in life. And so we encourage folks to stay around and fellowship and just enjoy speaking with one another, to eat. What better way to fellowship than over a meal? And that is the example that the New Testament churches gave us. So let's pause in prayer and then we'll uh, enjoy food together. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for this opportunity to teach the Word. It's run long this morning, but Father, uh, um, how can we ever have enough of that deep wellspring of wisdom, that spiritual feast, that spiritual buffet that is Your Word, Lord, the Word of God. Lord, continue to teach us through these messages to the seven churches. May we not get a haughty spirit thinking that we are someone as a church body, or we are something, or we have arrived. Lord, may we always be humble. May we read these warnings in Scripture and not always think about where these people or those people are guilty, but are we guilty? What can we do to be the things You commend the churches for and to not be the things that You indict them for? Thank You that even in the body of this death we can say praise God for Jesus Christ and put our trust in Him. Lord, use us as a church. Use us to be a light in these dark times. I pray for the remnant body, Lord, that is... Even here today in America, Lord, in other countries, some are persecuted, Lord. Some are members of corrupt churches. Some are remnant churches in and of themselves. Thank You, God, for Your remnant body. Give them strength, Lord, in these days not to bow the knee to Baal. Lord, we pray for those who are not among us, Lord, those that are visiting with us today. We're just grateful for the fellowship of the body of Christ. May this food give us strength. Thank You for providing it for us. And uh, may this Lord's Day just be a day to reflect on the blessings we have not only from You, but in the families You've given us, in our mothers, in our wives, in our children, Lord. Thank You for that. Thank You for godly women, Lord. Uh, thank You for those women like, that followed Christ, Lord. Those that heard and, 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 and turned from sin at the preaching of Paul and those that have instilled godly wisdom in us as they've raised us and continued to speak into our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen.